There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hi, this is David Marceau, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast, episode number 16. Just before I get to my guest for this episode, again, big thank you to everyone who's been listening over the last couple of weeks and months. We're approaching the five-month anniversary of the podcast already, and for a show where I expected to do one episode and have no one ever listen, it's doing quite well. So thank you to all of you who have been listening to the podcast and who continue to pledge over at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast or just for liking, subscribing or leaving a review, which means a lot to me. So if you do have a couple of minutes today, tomorrow, next week, whenever you may be listening to this sometime in the near future when our alien overlords have taken over the planet, just kidding. But yeah, if you get a chance to leave a review, please do. It means a lot to me and the show as well. Folks, lots coming up still in the next couple of weeks. My next guest should be Simeon Hine. We'll be discussing remote viewing, crop circles, consciousness, extraterrestrials, multi-dimensions, and a whole lot more. Really looking forward to that one. And then my guest after Simeon should be Chase Kolecki. Hope I'm pronouncing your surname right there, Chase, but I'm really looking forward to that conversation too. Roundtable number two, I have announced it should be myself along with the guests of Dan, you'll know him as the Zignal, obviously you know Dan is the co-host on the podcast regularly, Andreas Freeman-Stahl making a rare podcast appearance, uh, one of the big UFO Twitter activists, and Dave Partridge of Shadows of Your Mind magazine. The names aren't necessarily all a random mishmash of UFO Twitter guys being thrown on there. As we've announced, UAP Media UK is going to be launching very, very soon. Uh, Stay tuned for a lot more information on that, and no doubt that's something we'll discuss more as the roundtable comes up. Again, folks, if you've got any questions for Simeon, Chase, or the guys on the roundtable, please send them over to my DMs. That makes it a lot easier for me to find them. On the Patreon site, anyone can publish questions on there. Or you can leave them on the thread, ideally hashtag that UFO podcast. And again, as well, this weekend, folks, you should have on the same day this episode drops, that UFO update number two. Just before we get into the guest this evening, once again, thank you very much for listening. Enjoy the show. Here's a message from one of the friends of the podcast. Have you ever looked up to the skies and seen something you can't explain? Or walked deep in the forest and sensed something watching you? Do you believe in an afterlife or a hidden veil that can communicate with the living? Then you need Shadows of Your Mind magazine. Download all issues completely free at shadowsmagazine.co.uk. Shadows of Your Mind, where your search for the answers begins. Folks, coming back from that message, I have my guest on the show this evening, making his first appearance on that UFO podcast, and I'm sure it won't be the last. Uh, he is the National Chief Investigator for MUFON Canada, Jason 
Carrigan. The N is definitely silent, as I've just found out. Jason, how are you doing today? Thank you very much, Andy. Doing great, man. Thanks for having me on. No, it's great. And uh, obviously, we've been talking for a little while now, back and forward as well. And it's been a bit of a crazy couple of weeks and months in the world of UFOs, UAPs and everything else. And you're someone that's, you've you've got a day job, but this is very much a part of your life. And you investigate UFOs, which for some probably dreams up images of Fox Mulder running around <laughs> with a, a pistol and uh, flashing a badge at people. It's maybe not as, as sexy as that, if I can use that word in reality, but, but who knows, we'll get to that. Um, but you know, I, I want to know straight off the bat, Jason, how was it that you actually got involved with MUFON? And am I right in saying MUFON or would you prefer MUFON Canada? Uh, MUFON Canada, but uh, going forward, everybody will just will know that we're talking about MUFON Canada, not MUFON International or USA, just MUFON Canada. Sure. So yeah, so how did you get involved with MUFON? Um, well, it started probably about five years ago. I was... Uh, I was doing my own little investigations by finding UFO reports and then just seeing what I could dig up. And I was finding a lot of cases were just mainly misidentifications. But the cases that I was investigating on my own were getting few and far in between. And I was thinking, how can I continue doing this at a regular kind of pace? Because I really, really enjoyed it. So then uh, I signed up to MUFON and uh, became just a member and I got their their magazine and whatnot, and it would have case stories about uh, investigations, like some of the, the highlighted investigations of uh, cases that were deemed as unknowns. And that, that really got my interest. So I was figuring if I joined these guys, I'd probably have a steady stream of cases. So why not do it? So then, uh, yeah, it took me about another two years after that to actually come up to that conclusion and taking the step and becoming uh, a field investigator with them. And then uh, after time progressed, I, I started slowly moving up the ladder. That's awesome. What, what kind of background did you have beforehand that maybe qualified you for that? Or was it just an interest in the subject and the topic that got you involved? Well, I, I went to school for civil engineering, so I, I always liked breaking things down in my mind to be, get a better understanding. And with a, with a lot of the cases, that's pretty much what I would do to, in order to come to the conclusion that these were misidentifications for a lot of them. I, I would basically just dissect the case and, and break it down and put all the pieces together and, and come to the best conclusion I could with the data that I would find. So I take it as safe to say growing up, you always had an interest in UFOs, UAPs, aliens, whatever you want to call it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember being a kid like in grade three and this was before the internet was a thing in everybody's house and we'd go to the library with the class. And I remember finding a silver UFO book. I, I still remember the cover. It was a silver cover and it had a UFO on the front. And that's what it, it piqued my interest, just looking at the pictures in that book. And then I started reading the stories and I thought it was just some fantastic stuff. Like looking back on all the cases now, they're, they've probably been debunked or, or a good portion of them have been. But it's, it's something that piqued my interest and, and really drove my curiosity on this topic. And did you ever have any sightings yourself growing up? Is that something that's contributed to why you're so interested in the subject? 
Yes, yes, I have. And, and that was one of the, uh, the main factors that was one of the deciding factors, sorry, that uh, got me involved with MUFON as well. I had, uh, I, I had the impression that by joining MUFON, I'd get all the answers, you know, mm-hmm. but, but, but really all it's done is really brought up more questions for me. <laughs> I mean, I've got to ask, you know, do you want to share your sightings with the listeners? Uh, sure. Yeah, I can, I can get into it. Um, it they're nothing like too outstanding, but uh, they were at the time. And, and there was a lot of weird coincidences that took place with it. So I was in the front yard. We had a country home. And this home has been passed on through my family for about, I think, 70 years is when my grandmother bought it. She's 92 now, still alive and kicking. And that the house has been in our family ever since. The area is, uh, it's known as Trowbridge Falls in Thunder Bay. And it's got some legacy type of legends that go ahead with it about UFOs and ghosts and the haunting and everything. And, I lived probably three kilometers from this actual park as a crow flies. It's a, a provincial park up here. And I would be laying in bed at night. The kids would be all asleep. And I would hear what sounded like a radio, a really muffled radio playing from in the basement. And I, I would get up and I was think, because I had a little tool shop down there too. And I'd think, well, I didn't leave nothing on. I don't even have a damn radio down there. So I'd go downstairs, I'd take a look, and, and the lights would be off and everything. And it, it was be noises in the night. It sounded like somebody would pull into the driveway. And this is a remote, remote area that I lived in. So it was a road that basically led to nowhere off another road that led to basically nowhere. So if you want to get there, you have to, you have to know where you're going. And, and we would never have random people pull into the driveway at night and, and turn around. It's just, it's just not that, that type of area to have traffic or, or people driving around aimlessly. So you would, I would hear all these noises at night. I'd wake up my wife and she would hear them. And I was always, I've always worked out of town. So when I would leave to go out to, to work, sometimes for a month at a time, she would always tell me, oh, I heard this in the middle of the night. And I put this somewhere and I can't find it anywhere. And then the next day it's on the counter in the most obvious type of place. So a little like trick kind of stuff that seemed like was going on. So on one Christmas, my wife got me uh, a telescope, not, not a very good one, but just a new starting one. So I was outside in the yard and uh, because it's in such a remote area, there's no light pollution where I am, where I was, sorry. And you get a really good view of the Milky Way. You can see the stars shining through it. It is just beautiful out there. So I was, had the telescope out. I was just about to wrap everything up. And I noticed this one object in the sky. I'm watching it move. And it looked like I wasn't sure if it was moving and then stopped or if it was just autokinesis from my eyes just twitch or something like that thinking that it moved but it really didn't so I was watching it focusing on it but pardon me but uh, 
it wasn't doing nothing. So I took the telescope, I shone it on, I set it up just crudely real quick because I already uh, taken it down and it looked just like a star. So I start walking back to the house and just for one last time, I look up and it's moving. Okay, crazy, I think. I yell at my wife to grab my iPad and I was going to record this thing and uh, she comes outside and I'm pointing it up at her like saying, hey, look at this, watch, watch what it's doing. We sat out there for probably about five or seven minutes. I was recording the entire time. And I, I would think that it was a drone if it wasn't in such a remote area. And at the time, drones weren't even like a common thing yet. I know because I fly them every day. Like I, I work contracts uh, with different drone companies from around the world. So I know how drones work and I know when this type of technology that they use nowadays came into play. So at first I was thinking maybe it's a helicopter, but there's no sound. I'm recording it or narrating it the whole time. I'm watching it on my iPad the entire time. And I know it's recording. Finally, it ends up going up behind the tree line and I can't, we can't see it no more. I, I turn off the video, I press play to review it. Suddenly, I only have like seven or 10 seconds of video out of what I was filming for was like seven or 10 minutes kind of a thing. So that, I found that very, very odd, you know? This thing was moving erratic, but, but, but not too erratic, like how people say, uh, oh, it was zigzagging through the sky at miraculous speeds or anything but it was moving how you wouldn't expect to see a plane or a, a satellite kind of a thing yeah so that that was that was my first sighting kind of a thing i'll save the other stuff for another another time though with you no no that that's cool <laughs> and like you say it's one of those things that when you you tell people it back it's there's no up close craft and you know that you don't see anything shooting off at light speed but like you say when you live in an area that's quite remote like i'm i'm relatively similar as well maybe not as remote but where i live there's a lot of fields and again not a lot of light pollution if you're looking up enough you do see a lot of satellites you'll see and you'll know yourself you can spot an aircraft from from a distance because yeah flashing lights and they move at a certain speed but then every so often you get the ah oh, that's moving I, I tend to think if, if it moves anything other than a straight line then it's you know it gets me a little bit excited yes exactly i'll assume it's a satellite if it's going one one direction and that's it especially with the the starlink satellites now are quite oh yeah visible where i live as well and i remember the first time i saw them for for a brief minute i did get very excited that i was like oh my Mm -hmm. god there are 16 lights in formation flying over the top of my house and down and then you know very quickly it dawned on me i mean what could it be let's think about this and then i was like ah Elon Musk's got that Starlink train of satellites now, doesn't he? Yeah, and it was like, yeah. yeah, that's what they are. Yeah, so, but yeah, and when you when you see it yourself though, and like when you get to live in those kind of areas like we do, you do see lots of stuff, and it always just takes that one thing, and it is exciting, and especially if you've got an interest, you you do look for it to be that bit more exotic, don't you? You, you want it, to yeah, be something. yeah, exactly, because I'm so used to seeing all these other reports well nowadays i'm so used to seeing all these other reports coming in of most most mundane type of things 
that it, I don't even get my interest is, does, doesn't get excited from it because I can immediately tell, okay, that, that looks like a passenger plane. I can see navigation lights on it. Uh, oh, that's changing in its magnitude. That looks like it's a satellite flaring kind of a thing. But when, when it has those, just those few little odd characteristics to it, and it's just a point source of light. Yeah, it really gets you gets you thinking. What the hell can this be? Absolutely. And I don't know, Jason. If you saw the news story today about the potential UFO over New Jersey that's turned out to be a blimp. Oh yeah, yeah. I seen yeah. that this morning first thing, and then uh, I, I looked where it was, and I seen somebody already posted it. But I just confirmed. Yeah, it was the Goodyear blimp there going to the. Uh, the uh, Steelers game, I think it was. Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, let's be honest, yeah. at first, when you see the video, at a glance, it's like, oh, that, that is a UFO hovering in the Yeah. But probably yeah. CGI, but then it was like a little bit more of it. Oh, there's a couple of videos, and oh, people have stopped on the freeway to see this thing. And then there was the English speaking people in the videos because I think the first one was Spanish, uh, and then yeah. so the ones speaking English are all confirming that they're seeing this thing. But then it takes two seconds. Just read the comments what are people saying and very quickly it's a blimp it's a blimp it's a blimp and yeah go, ah okay it's just the angle it's the led board on the blimp fair enough but i can see why people misidentified it but you oh still, shit yeah yeah like there's that one video go. yeah that one video had like cars pulled over on the side of the yeah. road and everything filming it it was like viral marketing for a for a UFO movie, like. But I, yeah. <laughs> you still had people saying, "Yeah, but is it a blimp?" And it's like, "Yeah, it is. It it, it definitely is." Um, it's just perception and everything like that, isn't it? And but listen, I mean, that's that's great. Thanks for sharing your sighting with us as well. So, regarding your actual role now with Mufon, what does the National Chief Investigator do? Uh, so basically, any case that has been submitted to MUFON Canada, it comes directly to me first. So I have 14 field investigators across the country in, in different provinces, different cities. Based on where the case sighting took place, I assign that case to the uh, investigator in that area. That's the best fit. Uh, if they have the ability to go visit the person, if they're in close proximity, or maybe they know more about the, the type of sighting kind of a thing. Cause I have, I have one guy that uh, any case that's uh, black triangles, I send it to him. It could be anywhere across the country, but black triangle sightings, this guy's become an expert in them. So I, I just send them off to him right away. But usually when the case comes in, I'll try to assign it to the investigator in the area. And then once they are finished with the case, I'm the guy who does the double check. I also, I do, my own investigation on the case afterwards. Um, a, a lot of times a case will get dispositioned a certain way and the investigator will miss something or probably, or possibly overlook something. Uh, I'm that second set of eyes to make sure that we're only putting out relevant true sighting data. If I have any indication that the sighting probably has a prosaic explanation, I'll dig full deep into this thing. I'll go mad on it, trying to find the actual source and it'll be changed from an unknown, which is our way of calling it a UFO to an IFO. So as long as there's data there to back it up, even uh, say if it's, there's a passenger plane in the same area lines up relative to like the, the, the witnesses view angle 
I'll code it as a passenger plane if it matches up within reason, of course, and, and keep it like that. I don't want junk data being pushed out into the public. So that, that, that's another one of the things I take care of as national chief investigator. Um, I go over the statistics. Um, I put reports together. And, and basically, um, also the liaison for any of my investigators, if they have any questions, they need any help with anything, they come directly to me with it. I'll be, I'm more than happy to help them fix or uh, finish any case. No, that that's awesome. And so for from your point of view, like you said, when you're looking at things like passenger planes or like we've talked about before, is it a satellite? There's so many apps now or software, different programs that you can probably quite quickly and easily rule that stuff out, can't you as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Most of the planes, they, they have the, the proper transponder. Some of the smaller, older ones, they don't. So it just comes down to discernment if you're able to recognize some certain attributes that the uh, object is making then you can classify it as an ifo because it it has the characteristics of a a passenger plane even if it doesn't have the radar data to back it up but but yeah exactly so uh, i'm that guy that helps with those determinations no, that's great. And so the role itself, if anyone's thinking of, like I said before, Fox Mulder running about, you know, in the middle of a field with UFOs flying overhead, it's not necessarily that type of role, but you do get to examine <laughs> a lot of really cool cases and, as you say, kind of dig through and try and... And I like what you've said there about credible evidence, and that's something I always harp on about on this show as well, is credible testimony, credible cases, credible evidence... There's a lot of really incredible stuff, and that's not to say some of it's not true or not, you know, it didn't happen, but it doesn't help move anything forward, does it? Putting all that, you know, fantastic stuff out there. No, exactly. And and that was my, like, one of my goals by joining MUFON Canada. Like, we see all these these cases like like Project Serpo or... or, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like the California drone sightings and stuff like all these, mm-hmm. these vast hoaxes that, that muddied up the waters of ufology so bad that for a while there, we weren't taken seriously whatsoever. We were tinfoil little conspiracy theorists type of people. But when I joined MUFON, I made it my goal to bring credibility back to ufology even if it was just for Canada, because that's all you re- all I can really control is what comes in and, and what gets put out as relevant data in Canada. But uh, I do my best. I treat this like a full-time job. I work one week on at my job at the mine, one week off. During both of those weeks, though, I'm still doing cases in my office between building uh, dam projects or uh, uh, processing drone data. And then when I'm home, it's books on the table, research material out. I'm just, I should be getting paid to do this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel you with that one. And that's something I've said before, you know, I've got a full-time job, I've got a family, and this is something that you try and, as much as it's a hobby, it, it has become a bit of a job on the side. Yeah. And, but I enjoy doing it and I get to speak to people like yourself and speak to people that I never thought would be possible and meet all these new people. And it's just, it's a really good time for it. It's a bit of a crazy time for it. Um, what are some of your standout stories, Jason, from your time with MUFON so far? Uh, th- there's quite a few of them. And I wanted to bring out 
some of those stories on here, but I think that we should discuss some of the past cases that took place here in Canada, just so people, because people don't really understand that Canada has been a hotbed of UFO activity for a long time. And and it like, it dates back to the forties type of stuff. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that maybe I could go over some of the archived cases that the Canadian government has actually made available to people so they could do their own research and come up to their own informed decision. Uh, I wanted to talk about those with you. Please. And then, and then, yeah. And then maybe at another time I could bring out the best of MUFON cases for you and we could, we can dive hard into those if you want. So we've already set up a part two, so I'm happy with that. But yeah, absolutely. Jason, that's, that sounds like a plan. Go for it, man. All right. So yeah. So the Canadian government has made public a, a good selection of our old UFO sightings. The, um, the, the reports that came from the, Na- the, the Department of National Defense, uh, the Department of Transport, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and the uh, National Research uh, Council. So th- there's a lot of good information in these cases, because at that time, I, I don't think anybody was really trying to hide anything. I think it was more of a, let's try to get some answers here. And so the reports in some of these things are, are really highly detailed. But I'll go through a couple of them here. So on May 19th, 1967, um, a local prospector was in the Falcon Lake, Manitoba area. He had a close encounter with one of two unknown objects. He's seen two cigar-shaped objects in the sky. Another one came down, landed in his vicinity where he was. Um, as he approached the object, he thought that he could hear some voices or something coming out of this out of this object. The door was open. He could hear all these muffled voices. He tried speaking in different languages, trying to communicate with whatever was inside. The object rotated, and it blasted some sort of a gas or a hot air. Adam made him really sick, caught his shirt on fire. He uh, ended up passing out, going to the hospital, and ended up bringing investigators back to the location about a year later. And uh, they found a radioactive piece of metal stuck down between the cracks of these rocks. Now, it's, it's still out there if uh, that piece of metal had anything to do with the sighting that day. But my friend Chris Rutowski, he actually wrote a great book about this whole case, speaking with the family diving deep into all the particulars with everything. So that was one of the really good ones was the Falcon Lake incident. Um, in I'd love to ask a, a quick question on that though. Yeah. Yeah. Back. I mean, I'm you weren't involved in the investigation clearly. But even back then, was that a story that was just reported to the press or, you know, how, how did that come into the archives? Well, it, it has the RCMP. Um, reports in the archives. Okay. So when uh, he reported it to the local police, which was the RCMP, they kept track of all those archives. And then uh, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it even got passed on to the National Department of Defense at one point. Uh, I'm not 100% sure on that, but the archives are all there for people to go in there and take a look at that case themselves as well. Awesome. Um, in the same area, 
uh, well, relative same area, between 75 and 76, there were a large amount of sightings uh, reported for about a year straight. Um, it was a red glowing object. It, it became so well known in the area that people came up with a nickname for it called Charlie Red Star. Um, do you know, who you, are you familiar with Grant Cameron? Yes. Yeah, he wrote a book about this detailing uh, all the witnesses' testimony in chronological order. Uh, Jacques, uh, Jacques Vallée, he even did a presentation of some of the footage that was captured by a local news crew in a, a 70s documentary from this object. It, it, it's, it has a lot of misidentifications in it for sure. Like It was like probably what we would accumulate to mass hysteria. Everybody's seeing something in the sky. They don't understand what it is, probably a plane or, or something. And they automatically assumed that it had to be this UFO. But there was still a lot of really credible witness testimony in these cases. So that's a great one to check out as well. Um, of course, back in 1967, we had the Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia UFO incident. Uh, locals reported seeing an object crash down into the ocean. Uh, some of the people who first initially saw it thought it was a plane, and they contacted the RCMP and the Coast Guard, and, and they did a search for the object. The only thing that they ended up could find was some sort of a yellow foam that was accumulating on the surface of the ocean there. Um, what else do I have here? Clan Lake, June 18th in 1960. Uh, there's a, a remote pl uh, place in Canada called Clan Lake in the Northwest Territories. Um, the witness and a friend of his recently got dropped off in a plane on the shore of, of Clan Lake. Uh, they were doing some work, getting their stuff together. To, uh, I'm not sure if they were camping or going fishing or whatnot but they'd, they'd seen an object crash into the lake in, in close proximity to them. Actually, it's redacted, covered this case as well, and they did a really good job on it. Um, a, an attempt was made by the witnesses to try to locate whatever had fell into the water there, but they couldn't find anything. They, they ended up reporting it to the RCMP, and uh, you could actually follow a, a pretty large paper trail from these reports. And in fact, what's even, what's even weird about talking about this right now, that last night I was contacted by a pilot that lives in Yellowknife. That's about 30 or 35 kilometers from this lake. Uh, he was saying that he's been checking out the area and he wanted to know if I knew the, like, the, the approximate uh, coordinates of where the object went down. Unfortunately, there was no coordinates included in any of these reports, but there's enough little clues in the reports that we were able to come up with two contenders of being the crash spots. He's actually flying back out there today because he's a pilot and he's got his own plane. He's supposed to be flying out there today and getting some more pictures. He plans on landing down in the area, doing some footwork and, and trying to see what he can find. He's going to run a couple tests, uh, uh, EMF, test uh, a magnometer test and, and maybe he can solve this mystery <laughs> and on on that one because that's really interesting and, and something i've become more and more interested in in the last couple of years particularly is the correlation between these things being in the water 
and in large bodies of water, you know, under the ocean and potentially, you know, they're, they're there quite frequently and quite often. Um, and, you know, Lou Elizondo talks about transmedium travel quite a lot and that these things can easily go from space to the air to the, the sea really, really quickly. When you say yeah. this, that object crashed, is that... Cr- crashed as in you know it was it was a fault and it's actually crashed as we would say a car crashed or do you think it was a chance that it was deliberately going into the lake that is part of the mystery so the area that it crashed is about 18 or sorry it broke the area that it broke the surface of the water is about 18 feet leading up to that area is a bunch of reeds and from what the witness testimony says and followed up by the RCMP witness, he said that you could clearly tell where the object skidded through the water, taking out the reeds. They actually burnt down all the reeds in the area, left like a clear path. And there was a trail, I think it was one foot deep in the mud, like, like a little channel created, but one feet down, one foot down, sorry. And at the deepest part before it gets to like, into the dark part dark part of the lake it was three feet deep so it was almost like it cut its own path going through the water and then down into the deep area there so these guys took their canoes out right away and they were just feeling around with their paddles trying to see if they could hit anything solid Uh, unfortunately they couldn't find anything but they uh also planned on having uh, a geologist, I think it was, go out there and, and do uh, some radiation testing. But as far as I know, that didn't end up happening. Mm-hmm. But as for crashing, like as in the literal sense, I'm not so sure. It could have just been submerging at a, a very high rate of speed. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, that and that's absolutely fair. <laughs> one other one other case we discussed, Jason, uh, over Twitter DMs, a few different things we were talking about, was in June 2008 uh, around Niagara Falls, and it even involved Men in Black, didn't it? I'll let you um, talk about that one as well, because that, that's one that really interests me, and I'm sure it's a video that I'll put on the Twitter feed too, and it's something that people will have seen before, but maybe don't know all the details around the case. Yeah, absolutely. So I was contacted probably two and a half, maybe three years ago by a witness that was at the hotel that this all took place in. He, uh, he said that he was just getting ready to take his flight back to back home. He, he actually lives in the U S and he said that he had the urge to take a couple more pictures of the falls before he left because he had a really scenic room and he had a, a great view. So he turns around, grabs his camera, snaps a couple photos and while he's doing it he notices something in the falls and then suddenly it's gone because he's in a rush he has to go catch his plane so he just put it on the back burner thinking maybe uh maybe he just was seeing something or whatnot he gets home he brings the uh, the uh images in on his computer and sure enough there there's something that you could see in the falls it, it looks a bit distorted. It's in front of the falls. It's not in the water or anything, but it looks almost like there's some tor- sort of distortion field around this object. So he actually did some good groundwork here. I, I got to give this guy credit because most people just submit a sighting and that's it. But this guy, he contacted Transport Canada. So that's our aviation authority. He contacted them and said, 
hey, I was on vacation and I noticed an object or a helicopter, sorry, flying really close to the falls. Isn't this illegal? And he sent the pictures to them. And uh, he said, can you help me identify or, or, or yeah, can you help me identify this? And I just wanted to bring this to your attention, something along those lines. So the agent with the Transport Canada took an immediate interest, said, yes, there's definitely something here. So Transport Canada did their own investigation and sent some of their agents into the area to scour the, uh, the businesses for, for footage. So they contacted this witness back and said, oh, no, we had no luck trying to find the footage for, um, for the sighting or anything like that. But there's definitely something there. And they, he, he was using the term helicopter because he didn't want them to just delete his email thinking he was crazy or something like that or, or yeah. trying to pull a hoax kind of a deal, eh? So he kept on referring it to as a helicopter. The agent then checked all of the, uh, the special permits because Niagara Falls is a spot where a lot of movies get filmed uh, so just for a production value type of thing to use like a, a real waterfall. Eh? Mm-hmm. So they, they, they checked. There was nothing logged. And you would need a special permit to fly that close proximity to the falls. So I sent that image to two photo analysts, our MUFON photo analysts, and another guy I know in the States. Both of them came back saying, well, there's definitely something there. You can see a reflection of the light coming off, and it's just right. And he gets into all these tech- this technical data of how it's an actual physical object there. Same with the other guy. Says, yeah, there's, there's something there, but what it is, no idea. So this witness, he kept the, the, the emails from Transport Canada. And while I was investigating the case with him or for him again, he sent me all this information as backup type of stuff. So we'd have a, a paper trail of it. And he said that he went back to the hotel, um, I think it was like three or four months later, and he was friends with the hotel manager because he stayed there a lot. And he ended up seeing what was, uh, he described as orbs uh, a couple nights before what the hotel manager seen. So this is kind of going to get confusing. So the hotel manager he also did a report. He said that he saw a large triangle craft and he had a couple of his uh, employees or something with him there. And you, you got to forgive me because I don't know the deep particulars about his side of the case, but, but just basically what I, what I can recall here. He submitted the report to uh, API Investigations and they... Oh, no, no, sorry. I'm getting fucked up here. He submitted the report. Sorry. He submitted the report of a triangle UFO. And I think it was about a month later, he uh, got a phone call from his employees saying that there was two men just here looking for you. And they, they described these guys as being really weird features on them. And, and one of the women that, uh, that he was... Uh, that th- these guys were talking to or were crying to this hotel manager saying that she thought that he was looking into her mind, one of these guys and like that they were like very 
very robotic type of deals. Like basically what you hear with men in black sightings, what accompanies mm-hmm. them nowadays, eh? So the hotel manager reviews the footage. He sees these two black, men in black guys coming into the hotel and he submitted that to API investigations. And then API investigations did a whole breakdown and analysis. They did a really good uh, investigation on that part of the case. But I think as far as we still know that it, it, it's unsolved, that this is, could be, sorry, a legitimate men in black sighting. Yeah, and I, I've seen that video, and again, I'll, I'll I'll put that on the feed for with the interview, and even the photograph as well. I noticed you were talking to a few people, and you've got that too, and I'll, I'll put that on. And that is one of the kind of creepy men in black, and it is a short CCTV clip, but yeah, yeah that you can almost make out again the kind of featureless, and it's the whole no facial hair, really bland. Uh, yeah, They're hard to describe uh, because they all look the same, don't they? And everything exactly. is the same thing, which is which I'm sure is deliberate, but it is quite creepy, and it's it's definitely not the Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones Men in Black that. No, we, no, we all, we all and, and that's another thing. That was another thing too. If you look at how these two men are dressed, from what I recall, I don't recall, I don't see, uh, remember seeing anybody else walking through the lobby dressed in this t- particular type of a tear. Like, I I don't know. I think it's. It, quite possibly could be genuine yeah it's clearly a uniform but they're they're dressed like that deliberately like you say you can see the guests going in and out and if you've been to a hotel and even if it's a more upper class hotel where businessmen are going in and out they're very much in nondescript black you know long coats you can see the suit underneath you can see the hats and yeah so it's, it's it, I, they're always quite freaky and even I, I talk about howard hughes sometime who's who's got his radio show the unexplained um he talks yeah. about his own run-in with men in black as well and again it's it's quite sinister and you know uneasy and like you say there's 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 rumors that these these guys are you know potential clones or you know alien entities that are on this planet and work with our governments and that's another discussion for another time but a completely different discussion yeah (laughs) yeah. and um you can see that in the way they behave and the way they come across and like you say this this girl in the hotel she she felt like it was reading her mind and it was kind of looking looking into our soul however however yeah so yeah that that's a really that's a really cool case as well um something i want to touch on uh while, while we're on this, is Paul Hellier is um, ex-Canadian Defence Minister. Now, I like talking about another country's involvement with UFOs because this podcast, is 60% of the audience is based in the United States, which is amazing given I'm based all the way over here in, you know, the sunny UK, we'll call it this mm-hmm. week. But, <laughs> yeah, it can be really easy to forget around the world that these incidents happen and there are governments outside of the US that have an involvement with UFOs and uh, you know if you watch District 9 the movie I love the fact that it starts with a UFO mothership uh, appearing over Johannesburg South Africa and it was yeah. it starts by making that point doesn't it that uh, everyone always thought it'd be the White House or New York like we see in Independence Day nope it was a slum in South Africa 
So yep. it's nice to talk about other countries' involvement uh, in UFOs. And one of the most outspoken characters on the scene for, for many decades now uh, has been Paul Hellyer. Now, Paul Hellyer, I believe, is about 93 or 97 years old now. He's, he's you know, he's really got on in years. Um, he is yeah. the Canadian Defence Minister. Now, he's made a lot of claims over the years that uh, there are various alien races visiting the Earth. That's not new. And they're withholding technology that could save the planet. Also, more recently, he's been interviewed uh, and he talks about cabals and Illuminati running the planet, suppressing ET tech. Now, none of these are necessarily new claims. None of that's new. But given his previous position, they carry a certain weight and they make people sit up and take notice. What are your thoughts being being a Canadian and having someone representing Canada, having those sorts of conversations? I I respect Paul Hellier and I respect his opinion. As far as I go about with it, um, I say it is just an opinion as far as I'm concerned. I'm not speaking for MUFON Canada or MUFON because Paul's done a lot of great stuff with us. But if I were to make those claims, people would want to see evidence of it. There should be no difference with Paul Hellier. I think if he was going to make those claims that there should be something brought forth to prove those claims. Mm-hmm. And it's... I'm trying to touch on it really, really lightly here because I don't want anybody to get the wrong opinion of what I'm saying. But, but Paul is older, and now that doesn't mean that his mind is failing him or anything. But maybe he, maybe he has a different approach, and maybe he he does know something. He's trying to get all this stuff off his chest. I don't know. But when it comes to extraordinary claims like that, I need to see some sort of extraordinary evidence to to get involved with it. And and that's fair. Uh, again, I think what, what really strikes me, though, is it's that position that he has held, where he's obviously been privy to information. And again, he's, he's no doubt been involved in the topic in various different ways over the years as well. So for him to come out and say that, you would hope there's something to it. And like you say, whether... Yeah. Whether there is a bit of confusion there, given his age, whether there is people pulling strings a little bit with him, he may just be trying to get some information out there that at least, you know, it's a talking point and he wants exactly. to contribute and get the ball rolling. But when you think of it, he probably is about the highest ranking political, you know, or highest ranking politician on the planet that's ever came out and spoken in that sort of way about UFOs and aliens because you couldn't yeah. Lou Elizondo even as outspoken as he is on, on that level um, you know of, of clearance and where he worked in the government um, the, the next kind of steps up are your kind of presidents talking about it and your prime ministers and, and that sort of thing so and maybe that's something that, that's coming closer in the near future who knows I hope so uh, so listen uh, one controversial topic to another. Uh, it would be remiss of me to not bring up uh, recent events regarding MUFON itself. And like we cleared up at the start, MUFON uh, in the United States uh, or MUFON as an organisation, the name has been a bit tainted recently. Um, and that's not to say that involved the MUFON Canada, of course. Uh, won't name individuals on here because that's not the point of the show. And I'm not here to do that, especially while things are ongoing and stuff as well. 
do you think the recent damage to MUFON um, is repairable as a, as a brand? Or do you think there's been a lot of kind of lasting damage done there? Well, if you look back over the years, there has been no shortage of controversy surrounding MUFON. So there's always been something in the headlines about MUFON. And, you know, 95% of us, thousands and thousands of members are all volunteers which have no control over what the higher-ups do, all we can really do is, is roll with the punches kind of a thing and, and try to represent ourselves as best as possible when it comes to all of this type of controversy. So when the news hit about with, with uh, you-know-who, it, it was a shocker, you know, like, I've only spoken with Jan, or, or sorry, <laughs> I've only spoken with that, him. That's a okay. Times. <laughs> it's not it's not Voldemort. People know the name, but you just yeah. don't want to, you know, promote it even more. But people know who we're talking about, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I've only spoken with them like a few times via email, kind of a thing uh, about certain types of cases that were taking place. So, I, I have no love for what he did whatsoever. And I think it is absolutely appalling. And it was an embarrassment to me what he did because I do my absolute best every single day for this company, for that logo. I do absolutely everything I can to uphold the standards that I feel it deserves. And to have somebody come by and shit on it like that I took it very personally, and I know a lot of people did as well. So I, I do think it is repairable, and it starts with each and every one of us investigators all the way up to, to the head office to do their part and try to be the best person they can be every single day because they represent more than just their sick desires they or, or or whatnot they represent something that is world renowned and is supposed to be the absolute best of the best so i just feel that we have to take a step back look at how we engage ourselves and with others when it comes to representing mufon and really think about are we keeping MUFON's best interests in our mind when we do things that we do. And I hope that, that I hope yeah. that covers it. Yeah. No, it, it does. And listen, there's been there's been talk even before before this that things have changed so much in the last few years when it comes to the, the UFO topic that there there's an old guard that potentially are, are moving out the way for new waves of media, new platforms, new discussions, new ideas um, that kind of obviously led by, you know, TTSA three, three years ago, you know, back in December. MUFON has been around for a long time. Is there a case, and do you know what, if, if I was speaking to someone who wasn't a member of MUFON, it would be easy to ask the question, does MUFON yeah. still have a place in 2020? I feel that's a bit redundant given you are a, you know an integral part of the, the organization you know, from a Canadian perspective. What is MUFON's place in 2020 
as relates to the UFO, UAP phenomena? This all comes back down to our investigators and how they're trained. If they're trained to do the best possible job providing the best possible data to give to the public, then I can't see why MUFON cannot excel past TTSA in this endeavor again. You know, it, it's hard to come back from a disaster each and every time. But as long as you have the desire to, to, to push forth and do the best that you can and provide the public the most credible data you can every single time, then it's going to speak for itself. You know, there, there's, there's a certain person from a certain organization that has posted a lot of CGI type of cases and, or, or known hoax cases claiming, oh, you should check this out or take a look into this. Granted, you know, things slip by everybody. You know, you know I've been fooled a couple, more than a few times. And, but and, so, has, and were, so has Tom DeLong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that that that's what I mean, you know. If if we can continue, and I can assure that through MUFON Canada, I can't control anything else besides MUFON Canada. But I can promise that only the most relevant data is going to come forth with our sightings, with our sighting reports that's released to the public. And I, I don't want there to be a shadow of a doubt in people's minds, oh, did this investigator look at everything? Because I want them to know that if it's coming from a MUFON investigator, it's going to be credible. And I want people to realize that now and look for that going forward. Absolutely. And I think what you want to see is organizations like a MUFON, like a TTSA, like Skyhub, which is a new, you know, up and coming technology technology that people can use around the world you know you want to see working together in collaboration and that's how this could move forward even quicker you know exactly for example we're in the middle of a pandemic and if all the countries individually want to look at a vaccine and a way to kind of solve this individually they can do that but it's going to take a lot longer a lot more money and a lot more resources rather than working together and working out what's the best way to do this it's going to help everyone the quickest and and that's what you want to kind of see in, in any topic, especially with UFOs, UAPs, because as is the, the final word on my introduction to my show, it's a worldwide phenomenon. This isn't something that's relevant just to one country. This this does and will, in my opinion, change, you know, the, the course of human history when things come out as as to what I believe they are and you know what's going on. Um what I want to ask you on that as topic then, Jason, is Regards the UAP phenomena and the state of play, if you want to call it, where are we at right now in 2020? Where do you see things at the moment? Um, just real quick, I just want to jump back to, for, to your, your, uh, your previous comment about sure. how we should all work together. And I couldn't agree with that more. You know, like there, there's so many of these little walls put up between each inv- uh, orga- um, investigation organization's uh, data, pretty much that we they could have a piece to the puzzle that we need, kind of a thing, or it can go vice versa, and we could probably come up with a lot more answers than what we currently are doing by by keeping all this to ourselves. 
if it was if there was one one public database that everybody could just input all their data in all these different organizations we would probably be 10 years ahead of what we really are right now mm -hmm. but as for uh, repeat the question that you you just asked before i interrupted there no no absolutely <laughs> no thanks for coming back on that so what are your thoughts on where we are as you know a community uh, on the UAP phenomena. What's the state of play right now in 2020 as you see it? As I think that we're on a cusp right now of really getting maybe some solid, maybe one or two answers that will open up doors for extrapolation kind of a thing. We, we haven't seen so much data given to the public, I don't think, as far as I can remember, as these past year or the past year or the or 2019 or 2017, even going back to, we haven't seen so much government type of, of acknowledgement as we have recently. And if we could break down that barrier, but I know there's all this talk about national security, and each country's got to watch their own ass because the other guy is watching over them too. If we were able to, like in a perfect world, put all that aside and share everything and what we know, I think 2020 would be able to be a massive year for disclosure. Even with just the final months winding down, we could have some big revelations if, if there was a lot more cooperation. And it's at like a boiling point right now, ufology there's so much stuff coming out. A lot of it is garbage. A lot of it is misidentifications pushed as, as true, legit. And I want people, instead of just reading what I put online saying, no, I found it was this or that, do your own research. Don't listen to some jackass on Twitter or, or on the internet or anything. Do your own research because you are the best person to make your own opinion. When, when you watch these other types of videos online about people saying, oh, yeah, this was a, a Polydian ship or, or, or some other kind of stuff like that, you know, it, it just takes the person viewing that video five, ten minutes, do some basic research and probably coming up with a good explanation of what it really was that they saw. Sure. And I, I share some of those frustrations and, the, the, you know, the ones for me are – and again, this is, and I've got people who are going to listen to this, and this is going to be their opinion, and that's fine, and it could be right. I'm not saying it's wrong, but the whole these beings are from the Palladians, or these beings are, from <laughs> are we don't know that, you no. know. And I'm, if you've had an experience where these beings have came to you and told you that, then that's great and that's fine. But without that, you know, kind of level of evidence and proof, then I can't accept that as a, a sure thing. And and that's that's what we're all here to discuss. Because for all we know that, you know, it, it is just us. But what if there's other things in different universes, multiverses, different frequencies? What if they're in this reality, coming in and out of this reality? What if they're in our own, so in our own solar system, as we're finding out, you know, there's potential life on Venus and the clouds you know what it's just it's really easy to throw these things about and you know it's a really murky topic without pinning everything on one this is what's happening in mm -hmm. saying that jason my last question before i move on to the listener questions i am going to ask you your opinion on what you do think is going on i think the classic 
we have alien visitors coming from a planet to us in a flying saucer to visit. Do you believe that? Yes or no is probably a question that's got long, long gone now. What do you think the phenomena is? Just in your opinion, not that it represents MUFON's MUFON Canada's opinion. So I'm also part of MUFON's experiencer research team. And for for those who don't know what that is, that is dealing with people who have been affected by the phenomenon, either by abduction or any other way that has interfered with their life. And I, I got to be careful talking about this as because this is just my opinion based on what I have found through my research is I personally think that it is dimensional. I, for the longest time I had it in my mind that the, these are crafts from some point of origin in, in the far off solar system in our, in our uh, galaxy. But from everything that I've seen and, and making, making my best judgment with data that, that, Hey, it could be even wrong. I, I could be being tricked by it too. You know, I, I maybe I'm overlooking something, but from what I found, I think dimensional is a relatively sound uh, conclusion on my part anyway. I, I would share that sentiment too um, and I pre- appreciate going into that level of detail as well, especially when you've got affiliations like you do. Listen, we had a lot of listener questions sent in, Jason, and I've narrowed it down. Again, like I always say, there's been so many sent in that were asked within the body of the interview anyway. These are the ones that stood out uh, aside from that that would be kind of a slightly different conversation. So Andrew Hall over at Dead Hand Radio, I was a guest on his show some time ago. He's got a massive interest in UFOs as well. If you've got any interest in Cold Wars, UFOs or um, number stations, it was a really good show we done on that recently. Check out Andrew mm-hmm. Hall, Dead Hand yeah. Radio it's a really cool topic and it's got its links as well so um but andrew had a couple of questions for you firstly jason what procedures are taken to investigate alleged ufo abductions it's very tricky it's very tricky it all basically comes down to the witness if the witness feels that they have something physical that they can attribute to the abduction, then we, we need them to act quickly in, in trying to preserve whatever it may be. So say it's, it's phosphorus on their body. We, we want them to take a cotton swab, swab it, seal it, send it to our lab immediately and, and follow up a particular chain of custody so we know exactly who had their hands on that sample, when, where, how, and why kind of a thing. And, and then just basically wait for the results. Like we have a procedure book for, or, or not, sorry, a, a book, but it's more of a guide that we have on one of our uh, MUFON sites that tell you step-by-step step what to do if you feel you've been abducted and, and you want to try to maintain the evidence I hope that clarifies it up. Yeah, it's a very tricky subject. Anyway, it is. I interviewed Calvin Parker recently, one of the most famous abductees, and his story has lasted through the decades. And whether you believe it or not, 
it's I feel Calvin's genuine and with any abduction case there's always the the person may believe it happened to them but whether it did or didn't is another story but there's just so many people come forward with so many different you know afflictions and finding odd scars on their body you know implantations you know there's so much to that particular phenomenon. oh exactly exactly and you know j- j- my answer there just basically it, it just touches a very remote corner of the abduction phenomenon you know it, it, it's not going to pertain to every single case but it, it, it's it, there's different answers got we can go on freaking for days talking about what to do with certain situations if there is a suspected abduction but i just wanted to give a brief example there's for the listeners how many abduction cases do you get monthly or yearly if you've got numbers <laughs> percentage you know coming in so i don't get the bulk of abduction cases sent to me on our website there is a specific area and a questionnaire for abductees to fill out and based on a ranking system between likely or how likely it's sort of like it's like sort of like a triage type of thing to help the investigator come up with a probable approach for how to speak with this witness or possibly abductee so when they fill out that report, it goes to our ERT manager and, and based on its location, similar to how I do when I assign cases, based on where the abduction took place, it gets assigned to the ERT member in that area. And I get probably two or three sent to me a month. And that's that's still a, a over the course of a year. You're looking thirty five to forty cases just sent to you, which just is, to me exactly. And we have I think thirty thirty members in the ERT, and and that's just people who report too. You know, there's a, there's so many people out there that you hear about years later. Oh yeah, that that happened to me, but there was nowhere to report it, this type of thing, or they're ashamed to report it, or or they think that they they made it up in their own mind, kind of a thing. Awesome. And that was great. Thanks, Andrew, for those questions. Uh, Next one, Secret Agent on Twitter. With all the data, Jason, you've collected and analysed over the years, are there any patterns or recurring behaviours that stand out to you? The ones that, that do stand out is geological formations. So there's been a lot of sightings around mine sites, yeah, like known ore bodies. Uh, It's, it's not guaranteed just because you're at a mine, you're going to see a UFO or record one. But one of the, the most that sticks out to me is the geological foundations that attribute to the UFO phenomenon. Awesome. No, that's great. And for me, it's like when I look at when you were talking earlier on about bodies of water as well and how often that comes up now and the focus that I know a lot of people are getting tired of it, but the Nimitz and Tic Tac incident. But I think that just shows you the, the, the space we're in at the moment. As you talked about the data we're getting, that Roswell as a case has lived in the memory and was it was the beacon for UFO incidents for 70 plus years. And you never heard people getting bored with it. 
and we yeah. have had this Tic Tac event, gimbal event, and the Go Fast three videos. And after only a, like a couple of years, people are already. I'm sick of this. I want to see more. I want faster videos, better videos, HD videos, 4K. And I think it's just the how times have shifted that people are expecting more and more, and we're getting more and more data like that, aren't we now? Oh, exactly. And just further to add to that, I live right on Lake Superior, the largest freshwater lake in the world. The amount of cases that I've got pertaining to lights coming out of Lake Superior or going into Lake Superior is huge. So we also have a lot of really significant type of ore bodies around here as well. Uh, Silver, copper, gold a lot of different type of minerals i'm not sure what the geology is made up out of at the bottom of the lake but surely there's a lot of pressure down there so we could maybe come up to some some ideas of what may be down there type of thing that could be attracting them to the waterways absolutely next one uh, andreas freeman stahl good friend of mine on twitter uh, he wants to know what are your thoughts on how the canadian government approaches the ufo uap subject any signs of any positive steps towards transparency for you jason oh, i think by them releasing all the archives is a huge step well i shouldn't say all the archives because i don't know if it's all the archives but they, they put out thousands upon thousands of documents on the Government of Canada website t- for people to make their own decisions up, to come to their own conclusion if this phenomenon is real. So I, I think the, the Government of Canada is, they did a good job when they released these archives, but I would like to see some more follow-up with them. I'd like to see things being addressed further like we don't even hear about it in the news half the time when a sighting goes by it it would be a lot nicer if if the media would cover it more yeah what what i think i would love to see from that point of view is you know the canadian lou elizondo coming out and the british lou elizondo the italian the chilean the argentinian and having all these guys in similar positions or in similar places of knowledge coming out and working together and i mean that's a bit of a pipe dream probably but (laughs) if those people even exist which i'm sure they do in some way shape or form Um, yeah next up again dave partridge from shadows of your mind magazine everyone should be liking and subscribing to that free magazine which which has a lot of incredible content in it it's amazing it's free and dave puts it all together himself as well folks um is there anything to the rumors or have you heard jason that a whole tribe of indigenous natives to canada were abducted in one night it was either northern canada or alaska is that anything you've ever heard about I was actually just reading about that again the other day. It, uh, it's a false claim. It was taken from a story in a sci-fi magazine, and a couple researchers dug deep into it um, and found the source of the actual article where that was pulled from. Unfortunately, well, well I guess fortunately or unfortunately, however you look at it, nobody was taken. There was no mass abduction. And that's fair. It's one of those ones we put down to it was a good story, but it's, well, you said a good yeah. story. It wasn't good for the people involved, I'm sure. No. <laughs> Unless yeah. they were taken on a, a guided tour of a, the Palladian star system. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's fair enough. Thanks for that, Dave. Um, Kegsy, he wanted me to, and I think you did uh, 
have a little Twitter back and forward with Kegsy anyway. Ask Jason about the Betty and Barney Hill incident. Thoughts on this famous case and any other sightings around about the same time, given it was near the Canadian border? Yeah, I had to apologize there. My dyslexia sort of flared up. I read the question wrong. I'll be honest, Jason, and for Kegsy, I done the same thing where I thought he said... For no reason, it is a fictional case. And I was like, oh, that's that's quite direct. But yeah, so I've done exactly the same thing. So apologies, Kevin. <laughs> um, you know what? I don't know. That's one I, I can't even jump into to knowing. A good place to check or a good resource to check is Kathleen Martin. That is Benny, uh, I mean, Barney and Betty's uh, niece. She documented everything to do with the case and, and, and what was going on in the air at the time, I'm sure, it, it, everything. Kathleen Martin, she did an awesome job and an awesome follow-up. I highly recommend checking out her work for the Benny and Barty Hill. Awesome. That's great. Thank you. And the last listener question, um, we have Luke, who is one of the listeners to the show. Uh, Luke in the UK is looking to get involved in UFO research himself, and he's, he's making some kind of progress into that. Uh, much like yourself, wants to be very credible when you know, bring the topic to the forefront. Luke wants to know, how does Jason see his role changing if and when we finally get disclosure? If and when we finally get disclosure, I... I... I don't know. You know, that's, that's something I haven't thought about when we get disclosure. It's always been a push. We need, we need, that's true. What happens to these organizations when it happens? It, uh, I don't know, maybe we can go to our archives and, and try to figure out what really took place and maybe we'll get some further answers on old cases. Maybe, uh, Things that we thought didn't take place actually did. If we were able to get answers from whoever it is being disclosed, uh, I'm not sure. That, that's a really good question. Maybe, uh, maybe it'll be a, a time to hang up the hat, job done kind of a thing. I think for some, they'll quickly sink into the shadows, and I won't name names, but some of the bigger names within ufology who maybe make a lot of money off of it uh, and a topic <laughs> there's not money to be made as you will know and i know but yep. people like us who are in it for a passion and enjoy doing this and really want to know more i think if and when that time comes that we find out you know this is what the phenomena is it'll only open up so many more questions but those that have got sensationalist books and you know hide behind paywalls for videos and podcasts and content it's those people are probably the ones that will very quickly disappear because they'll, exactly. they'll be found out for kind of what they have in peddling. But for me, that would, it's not the end of anything at that point when we find out. And I, I do believe it will happen a lot sooner than later and definitely within our lifetimes. Like I think it's just going to open up so many more questions, not only what oh, has absolutely. gone on. Like, like you touched on, Jason, not only what's went on in the past, where we go back into, okay, so Roswell, what was it happened? did something happen and if it did then how can we now expand on that and you know the phoenix lights and betty and barney hill and you can start looking going nope that didn't that did that didn't that did but then going forward what do we do you know okay so who are the experts out there in the field and 
you know, all of a sudden certain documentaries become mm-hmm. so much more relevant and, you know, there's always rumours, things like Close Encounters of the Fifth uh, of the Third Kind, Steven Spielberg, that he had information that he was, you know, given from governments and it was a way to drip feed a really, really early form of disclosure. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know what, you should go back and watch this or do you know what this documentary was really good or more recently you look at people really jumped all over chains of the sea when lou elizondo talked about that on on twitter um so again there's different books out there that maybe point to different things but who knows it's it's all up in the air at the moment but that was the, yeah the, exactly that and, was and the, it all depends oh sorry sorry uh yeah it all depends what type of disclosure we're given as well you know like if we're told okay yeah something something crash landed in mexico but we don't know what it is and we've been looking at it or if it's something like yeah we we've we've been in communication with these beings for x amount of years and whatnot it all depends what type of disclosure is is how we would have to react i'm suspecting there would be a lot of people wanting some retribution for things that may have taken place where they said hey look this happened to me people laughed at their lives were ruined whatnot they're going to want some sort uh, of of retribution in return for could have essentially have ruined their lives having to deal with this type of thing so there, there will be some some pretty crazy things take place that's for sure depending on the type of disclosure we get I wonder what the alien abduction insurance claims will look like towards the, the various <laughs> governments of the world that was no doubt. It, if you think things like PPI were a, a big, you know, payment protection insurance and things like that, and, you know, whiplash from car injuries, yeah, when your governments yeah. had alien abductions as being a real phenomenon and allowed them to happen, that, that must be, that's got to be worth a few thousand, a few thousand yeah. of your local currency at least. Um, yeah, exactly. But folks, that was listener questions. And as we wrap up, I want to go through the quick fire round. Again, a couple of topics I want to discuss with Jason. And we've discussed most of them anyway. I just want to hear one or two words to sum up his thoughts and feelings on these. Or he can expand on them if he wants to. So the first one, Jason, would be to the Stars Academy. I think they have done an amazing job as getting this topic out there, having more people discuss this topic, more relevant people starting to take up interest in this topic and starting to look at things such as the senators or or some government officials looking into this. It's what we need. We need to have this discussion. We shouldn't be afraid to discuss it out of fear or ridicule. I think TTSA has sort of kicked down that barrier and kicked that stigma out of there when you got Senator Reid openly discussing it. You know, he is, he's an old man, an older man, and he has a lot of knowledge in this type of of stuff. I'm assuming that he has a lot of knowledge because he's privy to the information that would have been garnered. And for him to be, able to openly discuss it without people saying, Oh, this guy's crazy. We got to vote him out type of a thing. Then I think TTSA is doing a really great job. I'd like to see more transparency coming from them. I'm really interested in seeing their Adam project and, and how that can probably change the way our reporting structure 
for these types of events take place. Yeah, and that, that's like we talked about earlier, isn't it? When you talk about MUFON, TTSA, Skyhub, all these various different organizations, you've got the Vault app, Adam Project, all that can tie in together and, and make this a whole lot smoother and easier for everyone. Exactly. Next up is the Bob Lazar story. I fucking love it. Sorry, I don't know if I can swear on here. Sorry. I love the Bob Lazar story. I love the Bob Lazar story. I just, I, I, it was one of the, the great tales of hearing about when I was a kid, you know? So I, I like it. I, I believe it. I'll say it. I believe it. Put me on record. You are very much on record now. <laughs> Next up, Canada's role in disclosure. It's it's uh, very slow if it, if they even have a role in it. I think it's up to us uh, as citizen investigators to take this upon ourselves to try to find answers because at the rate it's been going, we haven't been really able to rely on too much government to disclose this, the information that we're looking for. Like there's a lot of South American or or Central American countries that are very open. Their government discloses everything that happens with it. And that's, I'd like to see Canada and the U S is to take up that type of stance and be willing to share all this information openly. Yeah, I like that. And I wish the same for the UK. And just to drop in later on, in a couple of weeks, actually, my next roundtable is going to be with some of the more prominent UK activists uh, on UFO Twitter. And that's what it's going to be. And I've got some special announcements on that as well. So people should stay tuned for that. Um, because I think that the national community have to get, have to get more involved, uh, not just the US, you know, other countries too. Um, the next one is MUFON. It relies on the credibility of the investigator doing the best job that they can every single time and putting as much information in our reports that other people can go back and review. There's nothing worse than than checking a report and not seeing what the investigator did to come to the conclusion that they did and having all these questions and having to hold to do the, the the whole investigation over again is sort of like reinventing the wheel when if we have complete reports every single time we know where it's been left off where we could pick up as long as people continue in uh, reporting and our investigators being credible and weeding out the signal from the noise then i think we can continue being a relevant uh, body going forward for more more than another decade Awesome. And again, I, I would thank, and I'm sure the listeners would as well, for the most part, I can't speak for them, but volunteers like yourself, Jason, that give your own time to look at these cases and speak to experiencers, abductees, witnesses, you know, from, from the, the range of topics involved with UAPs. And you do that, giving up a lot of your own life to it as well. So thank you very much for what you do. Hey, thank you, man. It's, uh, it, it is rewarding when you're able to help a person figure out what they saw because it it affects everybody differently. You know, everybody's mind is different. Everybody's thought process is different. Some people just think and it obsesses over them. What was it that I saw? I need answers. And 
those type of cases, when they come in, it, it does feel great to be able to provide those answers to people. The next one is just an either or. So UFO or UAP? Um, I like the UAP. I like UAP. Do you know, I, I deliberated long and hard over, was it going to be that UAP podcast or that UFO podcast? And I yeah. thought that the world wasn't ready for the UAP acronym yet. So <laughs> I, I, try, I try and use UAP as much as possible as well. And I think UAP like signifies the, wraps it up the best. It's, it's not long, no longer just uh, the nuts and bolts aspect to it anymore of just some craft coming from some far off place, but it is a phenomenon as a whole. I think it, I think it represents it good. And tying it up nicely, the last one is, what are your thoughts? What is disclosure or what's it going to be? Um, there's multiple ways that it could unfold. It could be how what we're currently seeing is what I believe is the drip feed until we one day it's it's sort of like, oh yeah, if you take everything into account that has been told to us for these past 50 years yeah there is something out there i i would like to see and a definite answer come out and, and all the information that's known provided public and and, and a, an, an apology maybe because they're going to need to do a severe apology to people if it were to come out that way that's a very interesting take i like that jason just in <laughs> wrapping up if you can let the people and the listeners know how they can get in touch with you and how they can also for our canadian listeners get in touch with move on canada yeah so you could either submit a report directly to move on if it's a canadian sighting then it'll come to me or if you want to talk to me on a personal level you could reach me on twitter um at uap bay is my handle jason thank you very much for your time today it's been lovely speaking with you hey no problem thank you very much for having me on anytime look forward to part two take care it wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer more like a hubcap designed by chaucer a little baroque and quite steampunk like alice was playing bass for the parliament of the little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little bit. Meditative game of fateful on meta. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs, and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. the window after the elf and I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red and I called up my boys they thought this was noise they thought it was a dream they thought it was my toys they thought it was my problems and they think I should seek therapy and I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me